0: AI Homework was published on Monday, December 5th, 2022. It happened to be Wednesday night when my daughter, in the midst of preparing for the trial of Napoleon for her European history class, asked for help in her role as Thomas Hobbes, witness for the defense. I put the question to ChatGPT, GPT, which had just been announced by OpenAI a few hours earlier.
1: Question. Did Thomas Hobbes believe in separation of powers? Answer. Yes. Thomas Hobbes believes in the concept of separation of powers. In his book Leviathan, Hobbes argued that a strong, centralized government is necessary to maintain order and prevent conflict in society. However, he also believed that a single ruler or group should not have complete control over all aspects of the government. Instead, he advocated for the separation of powers into different branches, with each branch having specific responsibilities and powers. Hobbes believed that the legislative branch of government should be responsible for making laws, the executive branch should be responsible for enforcing laws, and the judicial branch should be responsible for interpreting laws. This separation of powers would prevent any one branch from becoming too powerful and would help to ensure that the government acts in the best interests of the people. Overall, Hobbes' view on separation of powers were influential in the development of modern systems of government. Many political philosophers and statesmen, including John Locke and the authors of the United States Constitution, were influenced by his ideas. This is a confident
0: answer, complete with supporting evidence in a citation to Hobbes' work, and it is completely wrong. Hobbes was a proponent of absolutism, the belief that the only workable alternative to anarchy, the natural state of human affairs, was to vest absolute power in a monarch. Checks and balances was the argument put forth by Hobbes' younger contemporary, John Locke, who believe that power should be split between an executive and legislative branch? James Madison, while writing the US Constitution, adopted an evolved proposal from Charles Montesquieu that added a judicial branch as a check on the other two. The ChatGPT product. It was dumb luck that my first ChatGPT query ended up being something the service got wrong, but you can see how it might have happened. Hobbes and Locke are almost always mentioned together, so Locke's articulation of the importance of the separation of powers is likely adjacent to mentions of Hobbes and Leviathan in the homework assignments you can find scattered across the Internet. Those assignments, by virtue of being on the Internet, are probably some of the grist of the GPT-3 language model that undergirds ChatGPT. ChatGPT applies a layer of reinforcement learning from human feedback to create a new model that is presented in an intuitive chat interface with some degree of memory, which is achieved by resending previous chat interactions along with a new prompt. What has been fascinating to watch over the weekend is how those refinements have led to an explosion of interest in OpenAI's capabilities and a burgeoning awareness of AI's impending impact on society, despite the fact that the underlying model is the two-year-old GPT-3. The critical factor is, I suspect, that ChatGPT is easy to use and it's free. It is one thing to read examples of AI output, like when we saw when GPT-3 was first released. It's another to generate those outputs yourself. Indeed, there was a similar explosion of interest and awareness when MidJourney made AI-generated art easy and free and that interest has taken another leap this week with an update to Lensa AI to include stable diffusion-driven magic avatars. More broadly, this is a concrete example of the point former GitHub CEO Nat Friedman made to me in a Stratechery interview about the paucity of real-world AI applications beyond GitHub Copilot.
2: I kind of left GitHub thinking, well, the AI revolution's here, and there's now going to be an immediate wave of like other people tinkering with these models and developing products, and then there kind of wasn't, and I thought that was really surprising. And so the situation that we're in now is the researchers have just raced ahead and they've delivered this bounty of new capabilities to the world. That, And and in an accelerating way, they're doing it kind of every day. And so we now have this capability overhang that's just hanging out over the world. and, And bizarrely, entrepreneurs and product people have only just begun to digest these new capabilities and to ask the question, what's the product you can now build that you couldn't build before that people really want to use? And I think it's we actually have a shortage. Uh, and interestingly, I think one of the reasons for this is because people are mimicking open AI, which yeah. is somewhere between a startup and a research lab. You know, it's a, so there's a, been a generation of these AI startups that style themselves kind of like research labs where the currency of status and prestige is publishing and citations, not, you know, customers and, and products. And so, uh, so we're just trying to, I think, encourage, you know, tell the story and encourage other people who are interested in doing this to, to build these AI
0: products because we think it'll actually feed back to the research world in a useful way. OpenAI has an API that startups could build products on. A fundamental limiting factor, though, is cost. Generating on 750 words using DaVinci, OpenAI's most powerful language model, costs two cents. Fine-tuning the model with ROHF or anything else costs a lot of money, and producing results from that fine-tuned model is 12 cents for approximately 750 words. Perhaps it is no surprise then that it was OpenAI itself that came out with the first widely accessible and free, for now, product using its latest technology. The company is certainly getting a lot of feedback for its research.
1: Sam Altman tweeted, ChatGPT launched on Wednesday. Today it crossed 1 million users.
0: OpenAI has been the queer leader in terms of offering API access to AI capabilities. What is fascinating about ChatGPT is that it establishes OpenAI as a leader in terms of consumer AI products as well, along with Midjourney. The latter has monetized consumers directly via subscriptions. It's a business model that makes sense for something that has marginal costs in terms of GPU time, even if it limits exploration and discovery. That is where advertising has always shined. Of course, you need a good product to drive consumer usage, but being free is a major factor as well. And text generation may end up being a better match for advertising, given its utility, and thus opportunity to collect first-party data, is likely going to be higher than image generation for most people. Deterministic versus probabilistic. It is an open question as to what jobs will be the first to be disrupted by AI. What became obvious to a bunch of folks this weekend, though, is that there is one universal activity that is under serious threat, homework. Go back to the example of my daughter I noted above, who hasn't had to write an essay about a political philosophy or a book report or any number of topics that are for the students assigned to write said paper theoretically new, but in terms of the world generally simply a regurgitation of what has been written a million times before. Now, though, You can write something quote-unquote original from the regurgitation, and for at least the next few months, you can do it for free. The obvious analogy to what ChatGPT means for homework is the calculator. Instead of doing tedious math calculations, students could simply punch in the relevant numbers and get the right answer every time. Teachers adjusted by making students show their work. That there, though, also shows why AI-generated text is something completely different. Calculators are deterministic devices. If you calculate 4,839 plus 3,948 minus 45, you get 8,742 every time. That's also why it is a sufficient remedy for teachers to require students show their work. There is one path to the right answer, and demonstrating the ability to walk down that path is more important than getting the final result. AI output, on the other hand, is probabilistic. ChatGPT doesn't have any internal record of right and wrong, but rather a statistical model about what bits of language go together under different contexts. The base of that context is the overall corpus of data that GPT-3 is trained on, along with additional context from ChatGPT's RLHF training, as well as the prompt in previous conversations, and soon enough, feedback from this week's release. This can result in some truly mind-blowing results, like this virtual machine inside ChatGPT. This quoted bit really doesn't translate to a podcast. You can view it by clicking the link inside your show notes. What is happening is a user describing a Linux prompt, and ChatGPT is responding with the appropriate response from that prompt. The final prompt is writing code in Python, generating the final 10 prime numbers. The final paragraph in this quote says,
1: I want to note here that this golf Python implementation to find prime numbers is very inefficient. It takes 30 seconds to evaluate the command on my machine, but it only takes about 10 seconds to run the same command on ChatGPT. So, for some applications, this virtual machine is already faster than my laptop.
0: The difference is that ChatGPT is not actually running Python and determining the first 10 prime numbers deterministically. Every answer is a probabilistic result gleaned from the corpus of internet data that makes up GPT-3. In other words, ChatGPT comes up with its best guess as to the result in 10 seconds, and that guess is so likely to be right that it feels like it is an actual computer executing the code in question. This raises fascinating philosophical questions about the nature of knowledge. You can also simply ask ChatGPT for the first 10 prime numbers.
1: Question. What are the first 10 prime numbers? Answer. The first 10 prime numbers are 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, 19, 23, and 29. Prime numbers are positive integers that are only divisible by 1 and themselves. For example... 2 is a prime number because it is only divisible by 1 and 2 and cannot be divided by any other numbers. The first 10 prime numbers are important because they are the foundation of understanding the concept of prime numbers and how they work. Those weren't calculated. They were simply known.
0: They were known, though, because they were written down somewhere on the Internet. In contrast, notice how ChatGPT messes up the far simpler equation I mentioned above.
1: Question. 4,839 plus 3,948 minus 45. Answer: The result of 4,839 plus 3,948 minus 45 is 8,732. In order to find the result, we first need to perform the operations within the parentheses, starting with the addition. This is done by adding the two numbers together using basic addition, 4,839 plus 3,948 equals 8,787. Then, we need to perform the subtraction which is done by subtracting the number from the result of the addition, 8,787 minus 45 equals 8,742. Finally, we need to simplify the result by taking the absolute value of the result, which is the result without the negative sign. Absolute value of 8,742 equals 8,732. Therefore, the final result of 4,839 plus 3,948 minus 45 is 8732.
0: For what it's worth, I had to work a little harder to make ChatGPT fail at math. The base GPT-3 model gets basic three-digit addition wrong most of the time. Well, ChatGPT does much better. Still, this obviously isn't a calculator. It's a pattern matcher. And sometimes the pattern gets screwy. The skill here is in catching it when it gets it wrong, whether that be with basic math or with basic political theory. Interrogating versus Editing there is one site already on the front lines in dealing with the impact of ChatGPT, Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow is a site where developers can ask questions about their code or get help in dealing with various development issues. The answers are often code themselves. I suspect this makes Stack Overflow a goldmine for GPT's models. There is a description of the problem and adjacent to it code that addresses that problem. The issue, though, is that the correct code comes from experienced developers answering questions and having those questions upvoted by other developers. What happens if ChatGPT starts being used to answer questions? It appears it's a big problem. From Stack Overflow Meta,
1: use of ChatGPT generated text for posts on Stack Overflow is temporarily banned. This is a temporary policy intended to slow down the influx of answers created with ChatGPT. What the final policy will be regarding the use of this and other similar tools is something that will need to be discussed with Stack Overflow staff and, quite likely, here on MetaStack Workflow. Overall, Because the average rate of getting correct answers from ChatGPT is too low, the posting of answers created by ChatGPT is substantially harmful to the site and to users who are asking or looking for correct answers. The primary problem is that while the answers which ChatGPT produces have a high rate of being incorrect, they typically look like they might be good and the answers are very easy to produce. There are also many people trying out ChatGPT to create answers without the expertise or willingness to verify that the answer is correct prior to posting. Because such answers are so easy to produce, a large number of people are posting a lot of answers. The volume of these answers, thousands, and the fact that the answers often require a detailed, read-by-someone with at least some subject matter expertise in order to determine that the answer is actually bad has effectively swamped our volunteer-based quality curation infrastructure. As such... We need the volume of these posts to reduce, and we need to be able to deal with the ones which are posted quickly, which means dealing with users rather than individual posts. So, for now, the use of ChatGPT to create posts here on Stack Overflow is not permitted. If a user is believed to have used ChatGPT after this temporary policy is posted, sanctions will be imposed to prevent users from continuing to post such content, even if the posts would otherwise be acceptable.
0: There are a few fascinating threads to pull on here. One is about the marginal cost of producing content. Stack Overflow is about user-generated content. That means it gets its content for free because its users generated for help, generosity, status, etc. This is uniquely enabled by the internet. AI-generated content is a step beyond that. It does, especially for now, cost money. OpenAI is bearing these costs for now, and they're substantial. But in the very long run, you can imagine a world where content generation is free, not only from the perspective of the platform, but also in terms of users' time. Imagine starting a new forum or chat group, for example, with an AI that instantly provides chat liquidity. For now, though, probabilistic AI seem to be on the wrong side of the stack overflow interaction model. Whereas deterministic computing like that represented by a calculator provides an answer you can trust, the best use of AI today, and as Noah Smith and Rune argue, the future, is providing a starting point you can correct.
1: What's common to all of these visions is something we call the sandwich workflow. This is a three-step process. First, a human has a creative impulse and gives the AI a prompt. The AI then generates a menu of options. The human then chooses an option, edits it, and adds any touches they like. The sandwich workflow is very different from how people are used to working. There's a natural worry that prompting and editing are inherently less creative and fun than generating ideas yourself, and that this will make jobs more rote and mechanical. Perhaps some of this is unavoidable, as when artisanal manufacturing gave way to mass production. The increased wealth that AI delivers to society should allow us to afford more leisure time for our creative hobbies. We predict that lots of people will just change the way they think about individual creativity. Just as some modern sculptors use machine tools and some modern artists use 3D rendering software, we think that some of the creators of the future will learn to see generative AI as just another tool something that enhances creativity by freeing up human beings to think about different aspects of the
0: creation. In other words, the role of the human in terms of AI is not to be the interrogator, but rather the editor. Zero Trust Homework Here's an example of what homework might look like under this new paradigm. Imagine that a school requires an AI software suite that students are expected to use for their answers about Hobbes or anything else. Every answer that is generated is recorded so that teachers can instantly ascertain that students didn't use a different system. Moreover, instead of futilely demanding that students write essays themselves, teachers insist on AI. Here's the thing, though. The system will frequently give the wrong answers. And not just on accident. Wrong answers will be often pushed out on purpose. The real skill in the homework assignment will be in verifying the answers the system turns out, learning how to be a verifier and an editor instead of a regurgitator. What is compelling about this new skill set is that it isn't simply a capability that will be increasingly important in an AI-dominated world. It's a skill set that is incredibly valuable today. After all, it is not as if the internet is, as long as the content is generated by humans and not AI, right? Indeed, one analogy for ChatGPT's output is that sort of poster we are all familiar with, who asserts things authoritatively regardless of whether or not they are true. Verifying and editing is an essential skill set right now for every individual. It's also the only systematic response to internet misinformation that is compatible with a free society. Shortly after the onset of COVID, I wrote Zero Trust Information that made the case that the only solution to misinformation was to adopt the same paradigm behind Zero Trust Networking. Quote, The answer is to not even try. Instead of trying to put everything inside of a castle, put everything in the castle outside the moat and assume that everyone is a threat. Thus the name, Zero Trust Networking. See illustration. In this model, trust is at the level of the verified individual. Access usually depends on multi-factor authentication, such as a password and a trusted device or temporary code. And even once authenticated, an individual only has access to granularly defined resources or applications. In short, zero trust computing starts with internet assumptions. Everyone and everything is connected, both good and bad, and leverages the power of zero transaction costs to make continuous access decisions at a far more distributed and granular level than would ever be possible when it comes to physical security, rendering the fundamental contradiction at the core of Castle and Moat Security moot. End quote. I argue that young people were already adapting to this new paradigm in terms of misinformation. Quote, to that end, instead of trying to fight the internet, to try and build a castle and moat around information, with all the impossible trade-offs that result, how much more value might there be in embracing the deluge? All available evidence is that young people in particular are figuring out the importance of individual verification. For example, this study from the Reuters Institute at Oxford.
1: We didn't find, in our interviews, quite the crisis of trust in the media that we often hear about among young people. There is general disbelief at some of the politicized opinion thrown around, but there is also a lot of appreciation of the quality of some of the individual's favorite brands. Fake news itself is seen as more of a nuisance than a democratic meltdown, especially given that the perceived scale of the problem is relatively small compared with the public attention it seems to receive. Users therefore feel capable of taking these issues into their own hands.
0: A previous study by Reuters Institute also found that social media exposed more viewpoints relative to offline news consumption. And another study suggested that political polarization was greatest amongst older people who use the Internet the least. Again, this is not to say that everything is fine, either in terms of the coronavirus in the short term or social media and unmediated information in the medium term. There is, though, reason for optimism and a belief that things will get better. The more quickly we embrace the idea that fewer gatekeepers and more information means innovation and good ideas in proportion to the flood of misinformation, which people who grew up with the internet are already learning to ignore. End quote. The biggest mistake in that article was the assumption that the distribution of information is a normal one. In fact, as I noted in defining information, there is a lot more bad information for the simple reason that it is cheaper to generate. Now, the delusive information is going to become even greater thanks to AI. And while it will often be true, it will sometimes be wrong. And it will be important for individuals to figure out which is which. The solution will be to start with internet assumptions, which means abundance, and choosing Locke and Montesquieu over Hobbes. Instead of insisting on top-down control of information, embrace abundance and entrust individuals to figure it out. In the case of AI, don't ban it for students, or anyone else for that matter. Leverage it to create an educational model that starts with the assumption that content is free and the real skill is editing it into something true or beautiful. Only then will it be valuable and reliable. The daily update is intended for a single recipient, but occasional forwarding is totally fine. If you would like to order multiple subscriptions for your team with a group discount, please contact me directly. Thanks for being a subscriber and have a great day.